0: Hey, hey, everyone, and welcome back to Caffeine and Cats, a creepy podcast. I'm your co host, Abby, along with Caitlin and Lou. Today, we are going to dive into some disturbing cold cases. Before we get started, I wanted to provide a content warning in regards to some stories today. There are mentions of rape, child death, torture, racism, and things along that line. Um, as always, please follow us on social media. You can find us at Caffeine and Cats Pod on Instagram and Caffeine and Cats Podcast on Facebook. Give us a like and leave a review if you enjoy hearing our stories all right caitlin do you want to go ahead and kick us off with your story
1: all right i will do so today i have the servant girl annihilator so from 1884 through 1885 a brutal murderer stalked his prey under the cover of night this killer wasn't roaming the streets of london though that crime spree wouldn't occur for another three years This anonymous criminal stalked the streets of Austin, Texas, and was known as the Servant Girl Annihilator. The Annihilator's killing spree began in late 1884, and by Christmas Eve 1885, eight people were dead, taking Austin from a, quote, urban paradise to an urban hell. On December 30th, 1884, a young black cook named Molly Smith was found in the snow outside of her employer's home. Molly had an axe wound in her head. There were additional stab wounds in her chest, abdomen, legs, and arms. Witnesses reported that there was so much blood that she seemed to be floating in it. Less than six months later, Eliza Shelley, another Black cook, was found murdered on May 7, 1885. Her head was nearly split in two from being attacked with an axe. Only weeks later, on May 23, 1885, another Black woman working as a servant named Irene Cross was discovered after being stabbed with a knife multiple times and nearly scalped. It was after these three murderers that the killer was given the name The Servant Girl Annihilator by author O. Henry. Unfortunately, this name would soon be revealed to be misleading. On August 30th, 1885, Mary Ramsey, an 11-year-old black girl, was dragged outside of her home and into a warehouse where she was raped and stabbed through the year. Less than a month after Mary's death, Gracie Vance and Orange Washington, young lovers, were found with their heads beaten. According to the Austin Daily Standard, Gracie was, quote, almost beaten into a jelly. It was clear that the murderer was escalating. On Christmas Eve, 1885, the killer committed two separate crimes in two different locations. Also, unlike all the previous victims, these latest victims were white. Susan Hancock and Eula Phillips were slain in their homes. Susan's head was found cut in two right before midnight, and evidence revealed that something sharp and thin had been shoved through her ear into her brain. Around an hour later, the killer would strike again. Eula was discovered the following morning with her head crushed with an axe. She was also found to have had her arms pinned down by timber and raped. Following the Christmas Eve slayings, the murders just stopped. So who did it? The thing is, no one really knows who did this because obviously it's still a cold case. Um, Around 14 or 14, around 400 men were arrested in 1885 in connection to the case. I'm going to go ahead and tell you about some of the suspects and theories that have sprung up in the years following the murders. Walter Spencer was the boyfriend of Molly Smith, the first victim. He was tried and acquitted after two days. Eula's husband, Jimmy Phillips, and Susan's husband, Moses Hancock, were both arrested after reports of two suspicious white brothers found blood on their clothes. The prosecutors believe that Jimmy was a copycat killer and tried to use the earlier murders as an excuse to kill his unfaithful wife. At first, Jimmy was sentenced to seven years, but in less than six months, his conviction was overturned and the next trial resulted in a hung jury. Another suspect was a cook from Malaysia named Maurice. He told friends that he was planning to travel to London and left town in January 1886, a few weeks after the murders ended. Four or five of the victims lived in the same neighborhood as him. Also suspected was 19-year-old Ethan Elgin. He was a cook whose right foot was missing a toe and matched bloody footprints found at one of the crime scenes. In February 1886, Nathan assaulted a girl with a knife after taking her from a saloon to a nearby house. When the police showed up, they entered with the saloon keeper and a neighbor. Nathan was then shot and killed. Some people even suspect that the Servant Girl Annihilator was really Jack the Ripper, given that both killers preferred female victims and seemingly had a fixation on mutilation, sexual assault, and posing of the body. According to the 2003 book, Jack the Ripper, The American Connection, written by Shirley Harrison, the Servant Girl Annihilator and Jack the Ripper were actually James Maybrink, a cotton merchant from Liverpool who had traveled to the southern United States for work often. James ended up being poisoned to death possibly by his wife, in May 1889, after both murder sprees had ended. Another theory is that the annihilator was the construction worker who moved on elsewhere. This is considered possible since similar murders were reported in important cities worldwide. Yet another theory is that the murders were the work of more than one killer or even a gang of killers. They even had multiple witnesses that came forward to give descriptions But they were honestly just all over the place, ranging from the suspect to having a light, to a dark, to a, quote, yellow complexion. He was reporting as having a slouch hat, while others reported that he was wearing a dress. Forensics and investigations in the late 1800s were obviously not as refined as they are on the present day, so it seems unlikely that this case will ever be officially solved. So, who do you guys think did it?
0: That is so crazy that they had so many suspects and i'm just saying i'm kind of digging that jack the ripper theory and uh, i don't blame his wife for poisoning him
2: (laughs) i was going to say the wife was was (laughs) she was onto something she was awesome she was
0: a a true crime junkie before her time you know
2: (laughs) but i tend to incline more over nathan
1: yeah that one caught my attention too considering that he assaulted another woman um i also favored the theory where it was a construction worker because they're probably more transient it would be easy to up and go um yeah i jack- agree
0: in all seriousness i agree. I do agree with those
1: <laughs> yeah and the jack the ripper connection is interesting but i've heard the same connection over and over for so many different people it just doesn't seem likely but i also don't uh really believe that all the cases were linked especially with the two Latest ones with the white women uh, around Christmas Eve. That seemed like it was a copycat. You can't go completely switching M.O.s like that.
0: Right. Yeah, I have to
1: agree with that Mm -hmm. as well. So I was surprised those were even included in this at all, but they were listed as his victims. so Mm -hmm. who knows? Wow. Well, I guess with that, I will get you
0: guys started with my story then. Sounds good. This is the story of eight-year-old Lori Farmer, nine-year-old Michelle Goose, and ten-year-old Denise Milner, more commonly known as the Girl Scout Murders. So we're going to go back to June of 1977 in Mays County, Oklahoma, at a Girl Scout camp called Camp Scott. Now, this camp had been operating as a Girl Scout camp since 1928, so for about 50 years now. It was fairly large, and it had camper tents that were named after different Indian tribes. So to give a little background about the tents, they're about 12 by 14 feet uh, big with canvas walls that could be rolled up, and then a wooden platform that had four cots. They were arranged in sort of a U-shape. Lori, Michelle, and Denise were all pretty quiet girls that had gotten placed in tent number eight, also called Kiowa, together, that was located furthest from the counselor's tent at the end of this, like, U-shape that they had. Um, Even though they were quiet, they got along very well, and they were heard laughing and having a good time. That night, they said goodnight and were excited for what they would get to do at camp the next day. But unfortunately for these three girls, they would face a more gruesome end. The next morning, a camp counselor was walking to the showers early in the morning to get cleaned up before camp started for the day. In the early light, counselor Carla Wilhite saw something that would scar her for, for life. About 150 feet away from tent number eight laid 10-year-old Denise Milner in plain view on top of her sleeping bag. Carla was confused and unsure of what happened, but clearly this little girl was dead. She went running for help, stating, There was a terrible accident. All of a sudden, Carla noticed the other two sleeping bags dragged from the tent as well with the other two little girls inside. Now, she didn't notice them at first because they were actually zipped up inside their tents, whereas Denise was laying on top of hers. Lori and Michelle were also murdered and it was then that Carla knew this was no accident. The camp was cleared out that day and would never operate again. When the autopsies were released, it was stated that Lori and Michelle died from blows to the head while Denise died from strangulation. All three girls had been sexually assaulted two of them were raped and the third one was sodomized for days investigators scoured the woods looking for evidence and conducted hundreds of interviews they had no leads that was until police announced a suspect that they would be charging with the crimes his name was gene leroy hart hart was a 33 year old native to the area native to the area and cherokee indian police already knew who he was because he had previously been convicted with rape and burglary In addition to these charges, he had also escaped prison two times and had been on the run for four years when this horrible crime happened. Mind you, he was already serving a 305-year sentence when he escaped. So the DA announced they discovered a cave nearby with items inside that connected to Hart. In addition, he was an expert woodsman and his mother lived in the area, so he did have ties to that community. The items I was able to find information about included a roll of tape, a pair of sunglasses that was in a vinyl case that had belonged to a counselor at Camp Scott, and finally a Tulsa newspaper. So part of this newspaper was also found stuffed into a flashlight that was located near the girls' bodies. After this was announced, a manhunt would begin a long 10 month manhunt that resulted in Hart's arrest from a small cabin he was hiding out in. After a trial, the jury actually found Gene Leroy Hart not guilty of the heinous Girl Scout murder and assaults, but he was returned back to prison to finish out his time. He did end up dying the next year from a heart attack in June of 1979. So after this, there wasn't much development in the horrible crime, though semen was said to be collected from a pillowcase that was found near where the girls were found. In 1989, the FBI conducted a DNA analysis of the semen only for it to come back inconclusive and unable to rule Gene Hart as the murderer or not. In 2008, they tried retesting the sample with new technology, but the test, unfortunately, the sample was too degraded to get a result. In addition to the semen, they also say they found DNA from a woman that did not belong to any of the girls. So there has always been like a little bit of speculation that maybe a woman had been involved. Um, I even saw somewhere uh, where a local... I want to say it was a pastor, had accused four men of being um, in charge of this happening. I guess he gave names and it never really panned out, but it was interesting to see, you know, the theories that everyone else has. Now, I have to say the part that has me most intrigued about this is that three young girls were brutally assaulted and murdered, but no one heard anything happening. Like that just blows my mind. However, then I did find one source, an article on Ranker.com that stated around 1.30 in the morning, multiple people heard moaning sounds coming from the direction of tent 8. A counselor got up and investigated, but she couldn't find where the noise was coming from at all. So roughly 30 minutes later, a girl in tent 7 was awoken when someone opened the tent flap and shined a flashlight, but then they walked away. Uh, Then around 3 a.m. another girl scout heard a scream and someone else crying saying mama mama. Unfortunately they didn't know what to do and they just went back to bed. So now that you guys have all the information I want to take you back to April 1977 two months before this horrific crime that changed Camp Scott forever. Um, so there was a training session going on. However, the weekend ended early because the counselors came back to one of the cabins having been ransacked. And there was a disturbing note that was written inside an empty box of donuts. The note said, and I quote, we're on a mission to kill three girls in one tent, unquote, with the depiction of a man hanged by a tree. I'm sorry, hanged on a tree by his neck. Uh, but then the note went on to talk about martians so no one took it seriously but who knows what could have happened if they had taken this threat a little more seriously and till this day this case is still considered unsolved and my heart breaks for these parents and what they had to go through yeah so what do you guys think do you think that they let the wrong guy go do you think they ever caught who it was
2: i definitely think it was hard for sure i have no doubt
1: yeah, I have to agree. I'm agreeing with Lucia and Abby on this one. Um, it just seems like him is such a tragic story. It's always been one that's caught my attention as well. Mm-hmm. But those it definitely times. hits a little
0: close to home, you know, a little too close with the Girl Scouts and... My heart, I mean, like I said, my heart breaks for all these parents. I kept reading this one story that said how Denise was so nervous and was so homesick when she was getting dropped off. She kept telling her mom, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I guess some of her friends had backed out from going or they couldn't go or something. So Denise just had no interest in going anymore. And her mom said that just make it through the night. And if you still feel this way tomorrow, I'm going to come pick you up. And I just, I, you know, to feel like a parent, like you could have just said, oh no, it's fine. You don't have to go. And this would have been avoided. I don't know how I could live with that, you know?
2: Right. But at the same time, you you want your kid to have a good time. So exactly. I exactly. Understand. I see why
0: she made yes. her go. I yes, right. I one hundred percent don't blame her. I would have said the same thing. You know, I'm sure she sold cookies and earned it. That's how she got the credits to go to camp. So I would, you know, I definitely agree. She earned it. She should have gone. But there's always going to be that in the back of your head as a parent, like you know, you could have said no.
2: And I think I heard, I heard that she they even found a letter she wrote saying that. I think I I don't remember well, but I think either she was having a good time but still wanted to come back, or that she was just having a good time. Yeah, and she I saw had that mentioned
0: friends. somewhere, and I didn't bring that up because mm-hmm. I didn't see. You know, I wasn't for sure, but I'm pretty sure she did start maybe either like a letter or a journal entry, like when she was in the tent at some point that she was having a good time. So like all that's what I mentioned. Like all three of the girls were quiet girls, and I don't think. Any of them were super excited. I think like they were first time campers and just sort of nervous, but they ended up having like a really good time together and were excited for, you know, what else they were going to do. Right. So sad.
2: Mm-hmm. Triggered me a bit.
0: Yeah, it, it was a little disturbing researching, yeah. but yeah. So, Lou, why don't you tell us what you have for us?
2: <clears throat> okay. Mine is still a sad story, uh, more lighthearted high-hearted in a way, I guess. But I will be talking about a very infamous local case, a uh, cold case that is 19 years old. I mean, Netflix did a documentary not long ago on it, and I remember hearing bits and pieces when I was a teenager. So let me start from the beginning. Maria Marta velsunce was 50 years old soci- sociologist and daughter of a known legal expert Horacio Adolfo Garcia velsunce she was a distinctive member of several non-profit organizations and vice president of the Missing Children Foundation here in Argentina. She would be in charge of seeking and investigating to help the families get their kids back. She even investigated children trafficking in Buenos Aires. So, on and all, on and all a wonderful person dealing with an awful situation, but doing her best to help. So. It was on the 27th of October 2002 that Maria Marta and her husband, Carlos Carrascosa went for lunch to a friend's house inside the country club they resided. After lunch, around 4 p.m., Maria Marta and her friend, Viviana Vinello, went over to the tennis court, but an hour later it started raining, so they went back again to Viviana's home. At that moment, a big soccer match was on, so the four of them just sat there to watch it. Once the match ended, Maria Marta jumped on her bike and started riding back to her place. Now, the investigation claims that she took the side road that was an actually cemented road rather than the straight one that led to her place because that one was a dirt road. On the way, she crossed paths with three teenagers that witnessed her pass them while they were walking in the opposite direction. Not long after, they see a man jogging in the same direction as Maria Marta. I've read somewhere that they crossed him first and then her, but the main point is that they both turned at the end of the same street. So, I'm sorry, at the same side of the same street. This guy was a neighbor that lived a couple houses away from her. His name, Nicolás Pachelo. It struck them as odd, seeing the guy running under the rain, but but thought nothing more of it. It was near 6 p.m. when her husband, Caracosa, arrived home. That's when he found the body of Maria Marta, her head partially submerged underwater in the top and the water crimson with blood. He gets a call from the gate guards to ask him if Maria Marta's masseuse could enter. The masseuse arrives as he calls her out the window, saying to give him a minute because Maria Marta had an accident. He then calls his, their friend's house and then plus Maria Marta's brother in law and half sister arrive. When they pull her from the tub, they thought she had somehow busted her head with the beam or slipped and fell in the bath she was preparing herself. Her husband then calls an ambulance. That's the first red flag for me. I mean, why call friends before an ambulance?
0: Yeah, that is a little strange.
2: Mm -hmm. Anyway, this is when everything gets even more confusing, fussy, and incredibly messy. The first two first responders that arrived were told that she was softly breathing. I could get this wrong. Again, I'm basing myself off of the documentary plus what I've seen on the internet. A second set of doctors arrived and corroborated her death by accident, blunt trauma to the head consistent with the fall. One of the doctors told the masseuse to clean the bathroom so the family wouldn't have to as in a way to help them out. Maria Marta was then cleaned and placed in a downstairs bedroom for the wake ceremony. When cleaning up, her brother-in-law saw a small black metal thing under her body, which he thought was a shelf support screw, so he threw it in the toilet and flushed it out. The case was huge on the media due to her being also half-sister with a known news anchor, and her half-sister was a news reporter. Thing is... Two months later, on December 2nd, 2002, after a series of allegations and accusations inside the family, the prosecutor, Diego Molina Pico, ordered the body to be exhumed to do an autopsy. The family was in a turmoil, not understanding how she had died the way she did. How can she hit her head on the beam and stumble to the other side of the bathtub? She was also still wearing shoes, so she didn't sleep either. The half-brother then remembered that thing that he threw on the toilet and said that he should retrieve it since he could meet something after all. The autopsy revealed that Marta had been shot five times on the head with a 32 caliber handgun. The sixth shot had scraped the side of her head. So that thing that they found and tossed and took nine hours to retrieve from a big pile of poo was actually a bullet.
0: Oh my gosh.
2: I mean, I know a 32 is a small caliber, but I couldn't... Wouldn't five? I mean, five bullet holes can be easily seen, like in the hair. You would think so. I've researched the sizes of, you know, of 32 caliber hole, holes, and yeah, they are quite quite small. And maybe if they're all in the same area, it will it will make sense to think, you know, you busted your head and you cracked it open. But it's circles. Um, But then again, no autopsy was done at the time of death, and I'm guessing since she was dead, the first responders just didn't care to check further. On December 11th, the case goes public and the media explodes in theories. The family pointed their finger at Nicolás Pacheco, the running neighbor, since he had a history of theft inside the country club and no one really liked him. The media pointed to Carrascosa, her husband. The guy had a dark past, like gaining money in odd ways. The prosecutor Molina Pico pointed to the family and ordered to arrest both uh, arrest of both half brother and sister, the brother-in-law, the stepfather, two friends and neighbors, all of them accused of tampering and destroying the crime scene. Now, the most popular hypotheses on this case were. um, one that the family had plotted to kill Maria Marta, that the family had connections with the drug cartel, that Carrascosa, her husband, did it because Maria Marta was having an affair with another woman, and that they had fixed the bullet holes with strong glue on her head so the doctors wouldn't see them. I mean, yes, this is actually something I heard when I was a teen, that the forensic doctor had actually been paid to glue the, the, the bullet holes um, but apparently the chemicals that they did find when they analyzed the the holes and that it's a chemical that it's found in superglue is also found on her shampoo. So that was quickly discarded. In 2003, Maria Marta's brother-in-law was accused because the death certificate that he obtained that they they found Maria Marta was allegedly forged. Rumors said that they had done Everything super quick, so no one will see the irregularities nor ask too many questions. But then again, the other, side, the other side says that they did they did it that way to prevent her death from becoming a media circus, which makes sense. Of course, the prosecutors settled more on the first option and was sure that the family was avoiding the police that day and definitely hiding something. Now, again, this case is a mess. Still, here's some chronological order. But it's a maze. In fact, the dates I found vary so vary. So I will just use the years instead. Um, in 2003, Carcosa was arrested, accusing of killing his wife, then released under bail. They find DNA samples three to be exact in the house, and that for some odd and legal reason cannot be tested against the family. 2004, the prosecutor the prosecutor raised a barbell trial and A second theory is under investigation. Maria Marta was killed to hide money laundering performed by her husband and the family and that they were linked in a drug cartel. This popped up because Maria Marta and her husband had sent money to a bank in the U.S. during the dollar issue we had back then in the country. Basically, they were just taking out whatever dollars they had um, here and into the U.S. so our country wouldn't convert them to our money and making them lose a lot. It was magical times back then. In 2006, the DNA comparisons were finally done. Much as none of the accused, the DNA samples are of two unknown males and a female. 2006, the rest of the family and friends are accused of tampering evidence. 2007, Caracosa gets judged for the murder, but because they don't have any proof, the trial is dismissed, but he is condemned to six years in prison since he altered the crime scene. 2009, they accuse Caracosa again and condemn him to life in prison. 2011, Maria Marta's half-sister was accused of evidence tampering, but two days later is dismissed. On the same year, the trial on all family members starts, where the brother-in-law is accused of forging the death certificate, the half-brother for cleaning the crime scene, a neighbor that apparently told the guards at the gate not to let the police come in, and the doctor that requested the scene to be cleaned up and not reporting the police. During the same month, there was a back and forth after they were all condemned to four to five years in prison, and after several, several appear, appeals, the case is dismissed and they're all set free. 2012, Carrascoza's accusation is overturned, and he's set free from jail after 14 years for the murder of Maria Marta. So to this day, the killer or killers were never found. So that what is you guys... such
0: a twisted and messy case, I feel like. <laughs> So messy. Um, Yeah.
2: Um, When I was a kid, I I would hear hear only about the bullet holes being covered with glue. Um, But now, as an adult and a crime junkie, um, I'm going... Well, I want to hear you guys first. Who do you think did it or why? Why she died?
0: I don't even know where to start. I feel like there's so many different, you know, suspects, I guess, or like different reasons. I mean, I feel like there was definitely help in covering it up. It's just who did it and why. But I feel like the other family members definitely weren't helping get any justice for her at all.
2: No, not at all. And in fact, in the documentary, you can hear the 911 call um, of the husband. And when he talks, it's like he's doing a legal procedure. It's like he doesn't he doesn't sound, he doesn't have any emotion at all. Yeah, he's say emotionless. He says, There's a person here wounded. He doesn't say my wife. He mm-hmm. doesn't he's say he's not very personal or anything. No, no he's mm-hmm. totally unattached. Um, and that really calls my attention.
1: That's weird.
2: Mm-hmm. But then again, like the
1: same way, there's just too much going on.
2: Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you can hear the people in the background. I mean, the masseuse, the brothers, um, I mean, all the people they were with that day just suddenly were at the scene moving around the body.
0: Mm -hmm. And Um, I feel like all the tampering, mm -hmm. every little step they did was just a little bit more that they could do to cause that confusion and to keep it from getting solved.
2: Right and they all look super super suspicious and definitely Mm -hmm. the documentary in my opinion is biased against the family they look super 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 guilty um but i'm 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 more inclined into the neighbor i mean i think she walked into a um a robbery and the neighbor walked behind her because apparently she walked in through the back door and she would take off her shoes every time she would come in, but she was still wearing her shoes. So apparently she came in, she heard noise, she went upstairs, she saw two of the guards of the country club. Um, I don't know how they figure out it was two of the guards. I guess there were suspects. And mm-hmm. and, and Pachello walked in behind her and shot her in the head. But then why was why there was water... In the bathtub
0: yeah that doesn't make any sense
2: and why would you shower before seeing your masseuse if you didn't train these everything are very is, good questions everything is super super messy and mm. there's a second case like just like this one that's super famous also here um, that I might do some other time if this kind of subject comes up again
0: Definitely. I'm looking forward to hearing it.
2: Okay, and that was that was all.
0: All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed listening to our stories. We'll be adding photos and our sources to a social media post. If you have any comments or even suggestions for future episodes, please reach out to us at caffeineandcatspod at gmail.com. We hope you guys have a great week and we will talk to you guys next time.
1: Bye. 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 Bye.